Hello and welcome again to this uh, podcast series with postgraduate students in the Department of Geography. So these are all students who are taking the MA module in Spatial Justice, um, but not all the students taking that class are, f are, are kind of coming from geography. They're students from anthropology and media studies and sociology and also students who are studying to become teachers. So today we are lucky to be joined by Kira Marie um, Fannin, who is uh, doing the MA in sociology and has been taking the class this year. And Kira has been doing really interesting work on um, what she calls, and we'll get to this early on, I think, um, dispossession by decarbonization, which is a, a nice term, I think, um, you know, particularly looking at the Irish context and um, I guess some of the the justice, spatial justice implications of decarbonizing the agricultural sector and the, the kind of livelihoods and, um, uh, you know, local uh, and rural development that rely on on um, the agri-food industry. So um, we've got quite a lot to talk about, I think, with all those things, Kira. but maybe we could start with you just introducing yourself a little bit and maybe saying how it is that you got interested in the topic to begin with. Thanks, Patrick. Um, yeah, so I did the, I did an undergraduate degree in sociology and Irish. Um, so I suppose the sociology side of that um, kind of deepened my interest in inequality and social justice and kind of looking at the policy side of things. Um, and from there, then I went in, as you said, into the to the masters in sociology. Um, kind of from a personal background, I'm from a rural area myself um, and kind of living on a farm at the moment and having grown up here. Um, agriculture is something that I've always had an interest in, been been surrounded by it. Um, so I suppose with with climate action being such a, a, to a hot topic at the moment, um, the crossover between it and agriculture is something that I've I've really um, has sparked an interest um, of late. Um, Great, yeah, um, and I, I definitely think it is. It's it's so topical, and I think um, you know you, you don't have to. I don't think a week goes by without there being some new. Um, controversy or contention around climate action and exactly the, yeah. the the kinds of you know where the burden of responsibility lies and you know the ways in which that gets mobilized by certain kinds of um, uh, you know local politics and it, you know it is it's a very very complex um, situation and I think it's only going to become more and more important that people are, are kind of studying it and, and analyzing it the way that you are so I guess the one place to start is this concept of yours, which um, I, I don't know because I haven't talked to you about it yet, but I'm presuming it's your concept. Um, and obviously it riffs off other concepts that we've looked at in the module, but um, Dispossession by Decarbonization, which is the, the title of your essay. Could you maybe say a little bit yeah. about where that concept comes from, um, what you mean by it, and I guess how you think it, it might be helpful in understanding what's going on in Ireland? Yeah, so the the concept itself of uh, dispossession by carbonisation um, came from a, a journal article in the World Development Journal, um, which was dispossessed by decarbonisation, reducing vulnerability, injustice and equality in the lived experience of low carbon pathways. 
Um, so I read that along with other kind of literature around the Irish context and climate action. And I just felt that they really bounced off each other. And there was there was a resonance between them that really explained uh, the sentiment that I was trying to get at with my own essay. Um, Great. Just before you go on to explain what it means, um, was that article, because I, I, it's come up quite a lot in the interviews we've been doing, is, is, is the kind of contexts and the comparisons between Ireland and, and other countries and other parts of the world and Ireland's very, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, ambiguous and complex relationship to global economic development, um, you know, as a former colony, but also as a, a kind of a, a wealthy uh, country as part of the European Union. So just out of interest, that article in World Development, the discussions yeah. about dis dispossessed by decarbonisation, were the context being discussed were they largely in the what we consider the global south or what what regions were they no they were um across africa and europe uh, so it kind of looked at four specifically which were um which were uh, french nuclear power the german solar energy uh, start meters in great britain and norwegian electric vehicles so there was a four kind of okay cases that they okay. looked at Okay, that's that's interesting. I, I actually don't know the article, but I'll have to look at it. Um, yeah, they didn't refer specifically to Ireland, but I just thought that it, it it was able to be repurposed very well to fit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you want to explain then to the listeners what what basically what it means? Uh, I know that it's probably yeah. hard, you know it, we can go into it in more depth, but a basic kind of overview. Um. So, yeah, the overview of the concept, so it looks at dispossession, uh, that's environmental dispossession, political dispossession, economic dispossession and physical dispossess dispossession, um, all, all relative to low carbon pathways um, and, the, and the pathways that are emerging in the climate action plans globally. Um, um, yeah, so ba basically in, in some of the concepts, it is trying to portray, it's this um, it's a paradox really in how the decarbonisation measures that are, are that are occurring are at the same time dispossessing um, the likes of, in the Irish context and, and specifically the, the agri-food sector, it's dispossessing um, a certain proportion of beef farmers. Um, there are obviously then trades that are that are reliant on the agri-sector and um, butchers and um, bakers things like that uh, creameries um, also um, so there's economic dispossession and, and physical dispossession of businesses and livelihoods occurring there at the same time um, all amid these decarbonisation processes. And so I guess it's also closely linked to a concept that people might be more familiar with which is the just transition the idea yeah. that like in transitioning towards a post-carbon or post-fossil fuel society nobody should be left behind and the idea is that well actually certain decarbonization policies or interventions they do adversely affect um you know certain sections of the population certain communities and so this idea of dispossession by decarbonization is kind of saying something similar is that about right yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah and then um, I guess another concept that seems really important that you use in the uh, essay, and we've touched upon it uh, already, is rural spatial justice. And I guess that's reflecting the fact that where you're particularly interested in this dispossession of, of where it's happening is that it's happening particularly in certain rural parts of Ireland. But I wonder if you could say something about rural spatial justice 
because it was something that we looked at in the class and maybe you could just say something you know explain it a little bit and maybe you know why it's important to think about rural spatial justice because spatial justice is so often considered from an urban um, perspective Um, so, yeah, the rural spatial justice element of this, um, obviously tying into looking specifically at, at rural Ireland, uh, the def- definition that I kind of would, that I lean on um, in terms of rural space, spatial justice is from Michael Woods, whose research revolves largely around rural and political geography. Um, in his definition, rural spatial justice acts as a framework for research um, on the social, economic and political dimensions of the contemporary countryside both in relation to internal questions of power and resources within rural societies, um, and then in relation to the distribution of power and resources between rural and urban spaces. Um, So I guess that's a really interesting aspect in the Irish context, um, because we're seeing uh, the rural-urban divide shift to slightly more um, intra-rural inequalities and um, power asymmetries between the two, um, starting to affect rural livelihoods. particularly in terms of the, the beef and dairy. Yeah, I, I, I mean, maybe as you've raised that, I think it's an interesting one because we so often hear about the urban-rural divide and urban versus rural, and it's it's a kind of a, it's a narrative that I think the media really likes and it's, you know, it, it suits certain politicians very well as well. Um, yeah. But one of the things you talk about in the essay is this idea of intra-rural rivalries, which I think is interesting, and the idea... Yeah. You know, which is really important is that there's not a monolithic rural, you know, you know, there's rural towns and then there's rural kind of more hinterlands and there's different, you know, the south of the country is different to the west of the country and the Midlands and so on. And so I wonder if you could just say something about that, the idea of intra-rural rivalries, um, and maybe you could look at the, 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 the example of beef and dairy farming if you want, because I know that's what your, your focus is. So the intra-rural inequalities, and uh, they're becoming very topical within, with specific reference to agricultural societies um, globally, um, and particularly within within the Irish context, with um, with farming being so indigenous to Ireland. Um, it's it's this shift from the classic rural-urban divide to a conversation of intra-rural inequality and recrimination, um, and all of that is driven by by power up, uh, by bottom-up power dynamics. So we're beginning to see, um, to take the beef and dairy sectors, for example, the dairy is much more profitable um, in terms of the national economy and to the farmer themselves. Um, so we're beginning to see this kind of, this trade-off of, as the dairy herd continues to expand and has done since the liberalisation of milk quotas in 2015, um, the, the beef herd is, so, is at the same time beginning to drop. Um, year on year, and this has become a real a real concern for for rural communities, particularly considering the the biological aspect of rural communities, in that they are aging. The demographic um, of of rural communities are aging. And um, I, I guess it's that there's those sectors, the interrelations between the sectors, and I guess the other thing that you know that that idea of interrelational rivalries it's so important it's just that it like you know so there's one thing about thinking about the rural as monolithic it's also i think we tend to talk about agriculture in ireland as monolithic but we know that there are different agricultural sectors but even within those sectors you have different scales of farmer 
you know they have different resources wealth power and i i wonder you, you know whether you could say something about how important it is particularly as a sociologist that you know in talking about you know just transition that these kinds of differences you know within farming within agriculture both in terms of the types of farming the the scale of farming the um uh, the ways in which different kinds of farming enterprises are, are locked into, you know, certain kinds of, um, uh, you know, commodity chains and inputs and outputs and debt and all of these, which are kind of basic, like like sociological and, and economic sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, ways of, of, of breaking things down and analyzing things, you know, why they are so important to get us beyond these kind of quite simplistic narratives that we often hear, um, you know, about, you know, about agriculture. Um, okay, well, I, maybe we, we, we'll, we'll, we'll delve into a little bit more detail um, in two of these reports that you kind of focus on in, in your essay. And one of them is a, a report that was um, commissioned by the Irish Farmers Journal and carried out by KPMG, which is looking at agricultural sustainability, I think. And then the other yeah, one is, yeah. is by task, which is the sort of, you know, critical um, uh, social think tank. And that is about, again, it's about agricultural sustainability, but coming from a, from a, diff a slightly different angle and certainly emphasizing just transition. So I was wondering yeah. if you could maybe just say about like, why you chose these reports, why you think that they're, they're, they're important or revealing and uh, what it is that's in the reports, I guess. Um, yeah, so as you, as you um, said there, Patrick, the, the main three reports that I focused on in my essay were the, the first one there was from KPMG. It was commissioned by the Irish Farmers Journal and it was a report published on Irish agribusiness. Um, and it was all, it revolved around agricultural sustainability and the potential collateral damage of farms and of rural communities amid national de decarbonisation efforts. Um, the second then is a task published report. Um, and it underpins the discourse of, of the, the, this essay very well. Um, I found it's a, it evaluates Irish climate action relative to just transitions and people-led transitions. Um, so obviously from a, from a sociological perspective, that's bringing in the need for, um, it's, it's highlighting this kind of superficial engagement um, from a, from a, from a, people perspective um, in terms of governmental engagement um, which we're seeing which we're seeing uh, turn out to be quite superficial in terms of um, this kind of blanket policy this blanket policy perspective um, which is which is not fitting for Irish agriculture um, given the complexity and the differences um, within and between farms um, around the around the country. Um, in some, really, the, the in some the, the two reports um, marry very well together, and they are they're underpinned really both of them by this idea of dispossession by decarbonisation, um, and they highlight the KPMG reports. It's it devises four scenarios, um, the second, the third, and fourth of which um, highlight the need for a reduction in the national herd. Um, and they propose that this is the only way to meet the agricultural sector's target of a 30% um, reduction in carbon emissions by 2030. 
um, as we know, is only seven and a half years away. So it it um, it explores the economic and social implications for both dairy and beef farms, um, amid national herd reduction, and it highlights the inequality between the two. Um, in that the beef farms are generally smaller, and um, they're generally they're generally smaller family farm holdings. Um, and it also highlights the fact that a vast majority of these beef farms are deemed economically inviolable without EU subsidies. Um, so without this, obviously, these disproportion of farmers and of rural, of rural families, depending on the agricultural sector, will be will be specifically affected by by these um, unjust climate climate action plans. And what does the task that what does what what are the what's the the main takeaway from the task report? The the main takeaway from the task report really is um, it, it emphasizes this need for what they refer to as just rural transitions, um, which is a people led transition. It highlights the need for bottom up policies um, with a real focus on the individual and the lived experience behind these decarbonization efforts by the policies that have been implemented. Um, both papers highlight um, highlight the fact that emphasizing this this need for bottom-up strategies um, it's not an effort to to kill environmental action momentum or to romanticize rurality as it is um, it is solely to to emphasize the the people and the lived experiences behind these um, environmental environmental plans um, and just highlights the need for for climate justice um, We've talked about with other students who've looked at, are, are looking at um, the agri-food business and, and agriculture, rural spatial justice, and things. And I guess the the question is: so you know the the, the current um, dominant model of ag of agri-food production in Ireland, with its emphasis on on dairy, you know, from an environmental perspective, certainly is not sustainable. It's, you know, according to the EPA, and it also it 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 gives a, a livelihood and um, you know is profitable for a certain section of farmers. But even as you said there, with the beef farming and lots of other farmers, you know, there's a, a big swathe of farmers who are effectively they're they're not viable. They they they're, they're less reliant on agriculture than they are on on um, European. Um, uh, payments. Okay, yeah. So I guess I guess the question is, who is protecting, or what is being protected, by trying to maintain things pretty much as they are, and if we aren't to maintain things as they are, if we do need to transform things in quite a radical way, not just tinker around the edges, are there ways in which that can actually be more beneficial for? more farmers it might not be beneficial for some farmers you know particularly those who are very invested in uh, a model of farming that isn't that sustainable but for some or but for many farmers you know who are already not viable maybe other kinds of agri-food production or um, you know ecological restoration or other kinds of activities might be a better way to go uh, you know not just farmers but you know other people who want to live off the land and make some kind of a, a living from the land.
Um, yeah, so I think in terms of where do we go from here in terms of the Irish agri-food sector, I think there needs to be um, some kind of recap on the on the special position of Irish agriculture within the Irish economy. Um, obviously, at the moment, Irish agriculture is on the front line in terms of, of um, fighting the climate crisis in that it's uh, the sector as a whole accounts for over a third of Irish national emissions. In a global context, um, given that the that Irish agriculture and Irish beef in particular is one of the most efficient um, producers in the world, tag with with um, thanks to its to its um, grass based system. If if we were to to proceed with these national herd reduction plans, um, it would it would result in in Ireland having to to import beef and to keep up with with rising demands. Um, which would lead to a soar in, in overall global emissions. Um, in terms of, of political support and policy support, um, there is there is a concern that um, obviously CAP, uh, Common Agriculture Policy, there is plans in place there to support um, to support farms and farmers throughout these climate action transitions. Um, but there is a concern that these um, plans won't be enough to deal with the extent of and destruction that, that possibly will lead from proposed proposed climate action plans. Maybe what about alternatives? I mean, I guess it's it's to get back to this idea of agriculture is not monolithic, which has come up in other conversations that we've had on the podcast, which is when people think agriculture and people talk agriculture, it's often the IFA, it's often the Irish Farmers Journal. You know, these are two very powerful media, you know, um, uh, organs uh, of, of organizations um, and they very much represent dairy and to a lesser extent beef but also beef but there are there are lots of other you know forms of agriculture that have been practiced that are being practiced in Ireland that are not as as profitable but that's largely because they haven't been given the you know political uh, you know technical scientific economic support that beef and dairy have particularly since the 1970s since we joined the EC so there is an argument that you know we don't have to just keep on thinking about Irish agriculture into the future as being grass-based beef and dairy that there are other alternatives but in order for those alternatives to be making meaningful livelihoods for them to be producing you know nutritious food and so on they will need investment they will need supports and I guess that's the argument that would come from groups like you know Tel Bio and other proponents of food sovereignty in Ireland and I don't know what do you what do you make of that side of things um, I guess which is a different kind of voice within the the sector um, well I think that really comes back I think to a question of once again bringing us back to this this rural urban divide and where this money is where the national money is being spent um, obviously, in terms of Ireland's agricultural land as it stands, there's much of that land which isn't which isn't um, viable for the likes of for the likes of growing crops or forestry. Um, so obviously, those will need further investment and further attention from a political point of view to support um, to support further any farmers who need to transition into those. Um, which obviously, in the, in the bigger picture, will support the national. Um, climate action plans and climate action targets, um, but at the moment that 
that funding doesn't appear to be there, which is also, it's, it brings us back to that, to that rural urban divide and the, the power asymmetries within the, within the national economy of where the money has been spent and what sectors have been targeted for that funding. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's, I guess it's also not just a rural urban divide, though, is it? I mean, I, you know, I think about, um, was it, was it last year, the big controversy with Antashka against the new dairy plant that was going to be built in Kilkenny? And, you know, that's a huge investment of money. There was a, I think it was a consortium of a Dutch uh, dairy processing company yeah, yeah. makes cheese and, and an Irish company. I don't know if it was Glambia or Kerrygold or I forget now, but, you know, that was a huge investment of money into a very large industrial, you know, processing unit, which effectively, you know, locks, uh, you know, Irish agriculture into a particular model, which is about, uh, you know, milk uh, as the raw input, but also about processing that milk and exporting that milk and turning it into all sorts of other products which can be sold. And I guess, you know, the argument there is that that's, that's investment in rural. It's just maybe an investment which serves certain sectors of the agricultural economy, certain types of farming, you know, certain, certain interests, whereas a, a different investment you know, may have created a different kind of infrastructure, a different kind of uh, agricultural model, which which would have served a different set of farmers and a different set of interests. So I don't know if it's just rural or urban, is it? I mean, it's also a, a, a certain kind of agri, I guess, agri-food, you know, model, which does continue to be served, um, I think, by, by government policy, um, whereas others don't. I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe where we're getting to is is a point where, you know, we really have to start getting quite granular about these things and breaking it down. But um, um, is there anything, anything, um, anything you want to end on in terms of like where you see things going? Like, what's the what 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 the likely directions are in terms of government policy, and how they're going to manage this um, this very thorny issue of kind of balancing agricultural interests, certain agricultural interests, and the need to decarbonise. Um, in in some ways, of of the discourse of of both yesterday and this podcast, um, the the terms of the Paris Agreement, um, for Ireland and for 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 global nations, um, the the imperatives of a just transition of the workforce, um, and of and the creation of decent work and quality of jobs. In accordance with nationally defined development priorities, um, the mapping of these conditions onto the mapping of, of those priorities onto the Irish condition um, won't come without its without its complications. Um, and I think that's that's beginning to have been realised already. Um, in terms of, of policy, I think um, this the kind of the C suite of, of violence decision makers are compelled to take a more people centred. Um, approach and to a, a more people-centered approach to climate justice, um, and take take those lived experiences into consideration. Great, thanks, Kira. That's a good spot to end on. I think this is a. It's obviously a, a discussion that uh, is going to keep on going, and I I think um, you know, this question of who, you know, who is carrying the burden, who speaks for the people. You know this idea of, of lived experience and and people people centered climate action and people centered climate justice. I think you know th- there's going to be a, a the need for a lot of of, of interpretation and and um, 
interrogation of these claims as, as time goes on, because it's definitely going to be a political, a point of real political contention. And not yeah. just in Ireland, obviously we've seen it happening elsewhere. So I really appreciate all your, your work and your insights. Um, and yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you.